Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Well, hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California, or as we say in Czech, Vatama Voss, right? My name is Stephen Saum. I'm Executive Director of Strategic Communications and Content at St. Mary's College across the Bay. Uh, but maybe more relevant for tonight, I also have the fortune to serve as an attache with the Honorary Consulate General of the Czech Republic here in San Francisco in Silicon Valley. Uh, the club would like to thank the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting tonight's Good Lit event. And now it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest. Ethan Shiner is a professor of political science at the University of California, Davis, where he teaches and writes on the intersection of sports and politics. His latest book is Freedom to Win, a Cold War story of the courageous hockey team that fought the Soviets for the soul of its people and Olympic gold. Ethan's book is a celebration of courage and hope and the epic hockey games between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia in the 1969 World Championships, and so much more. Please join me in welcoming Ethan Scheiner. Thank you very much. This is a story that requires a little background to it, to really fully help the conversation move forward. So we talked about, perhaps I would give you a little bit of background, and also I have some truly wonderful pictures to share along the way that really help uh, make the story come out, come alive a little bit more. Also, I'd like to thank the Commonwealth Club so much for having me. Stephen, thank you so much for the really kind introduction uh, to the picnic. I, I always want to call the Pivnikas the Pivnichkas because of the connection to the Czech world. Um, and thank you so much for suggesting I, I offer to speak here. Um, also, very much thanks to uh, the Osher Foundation and Bernard Osher for the support for this program. Now, speaking of Richard, I want to highlight a spectacular book. Um, you know, I'm supposed to speak on my book today, but I also wanted to highlight an incredible one, which Richard was heavily involved with, produced. And what this book is, it is called Prague 1968. And it is a showcase of astonishing pictures from, well, the invasion that's at the story of, of at the center of the story that I'm going to be talking about today. Um, it is, these are photos taken by then a young man, uh, Paul Goldsmith from Marin. And I, I just really can't, uh, I, I cannot emphasize how special these pictures are. So I really uh, recommend people try and find this book of Prague 1968. Richard, thank you so much for sharing this. All right. Well, it is a delight to get to come here and speak with you about the story I tell in my book, Freedom to Win. And so at its core, this is a story that shows just how much sports can mean to people especially in moments of crisis. And this is a story about people responding to a time of crisis. It's an amazing story about how a hockey team, a hockey team inspired a nation when that nation had nearly lost all hope that it would ever again be free in any way at all. So this is a story also that shows just what international sports can mean. George Orwell, George Orwell of all people, once described serious sports as war minus the shooting. Most of us find that to be a bit of an exaggeration, but in Freedom to Win, sports are just that. They are war minus the shooting. Now, before I get into the details of the actual story itself, I'd like to tell you a little bit about how I came to write this book. 
So a number of years ago, I decided to teach a class on politics and sports, and I taught it for the first time in 2016, and essentially immediately realized that I needed to do a whole lot of new research in order to make this class work. When you're at a research school like UC Davis, professors are experts in a particular area. These are the types of books I've written in the past. I've spent decades studying Japanese politics and elections around the world, and my research had nothing to do with sports. In fact, political scientists don't usually work on sports. But so I was sitting there preparing the initial lectures for politics and sports, and I wasn't really sure at first what to cover. I figured I'd do something on civil rights in the United States and the important sports stories there. But I also, I wanted to provide my students stories about other countries. But where would I find such examples? So I started poking around, poking around, and I came across a book that opened with something remarkable. It was a true story of how sport, in this case, a pair of hockey matches, in 1969, truly became war minus the shooting. It involved brave hockey players. Hockey players who truly represented the people of their country against their country's enemy when there was no other way to fight back. And that, talk, that book talked about how those games inspired the people of that country to act. So I'm sitting here thinking, this is the perfect story for my students. And then I got to page nine, and the story ended. That was all that was written on it. And I couldn't find more information anywhere. Well, at first I decided I was just going to let this be. But over time, I couldn't stop thinking about this remarkable story that I'd come across. And I started thinking, somebody needs to write a book about this. So I didn't think I was the person who should write that book. I didn't know much about hockey. I am not a specialist on the politics of the countries involved. And I don't speak the language of those countries. I couldn't, I couldn't turn my eyes away. And I started doing more and more research and I became hooked. So whether or not I was the right person to do it, I decided to make a go at writing this story. And as I did, I realized there was a person I needed to speak to. He was a former hockey player, and his family was at the center of the story I was interested in. His name was Bobby Holik, and he had been an all-star player in the National Hockey League, the North American NHL. Now, I couldn't find an electronic means to reach out to him, so I went the old school method. I wrote him a post, you know, a letter that I stuck in a mailbox. And then I assumed I would never hear from this hockey player. Well, two weeks later, I pick up my phone and there's a voicemail. Ethan, it's Bobby Holik. I love your project. Call me. A couple days later, I was on a plane to Wyoming to go meet the hockey player and begin my big adventure, which ultimately took me thousands of miles away to two truly stunning countries. And that's where I learned the details of the story I tell in Freedom to Win. All right, well, the real story then begins in 1942, as Bobby's father, a boy named Yaroslav Holik, was born in a little town in a country that was once known as Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was in a precarious position. It sat between 
the two most powerful countries in Europe. It had Germany directly to the West and the Soviet Union directly to the East. And that was a huge problem. In 1938, the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia and occupied much of it throughout World War II. The Nazis continued to occupy the country as baby Yaroslav Holik was born in 1942, and they continued to occupy in 1944 when Yaroslav's baby brother Yuzhi was born. Like everybody else in Czechoslovakia then, the Holiks rejoiced when the Soviet Red Army of all people arrived in 1945 and drove the Germans out. The immediate years that followed were actually very special for the Holik family. They owned a butcher shop, and after the war ended, they worked tirelessly to make that butcher shop a success in their little town. Before long, the Holiks came to rue the day, though, the Soviets had set foot on Czechoslovak soil. In the first years after World War II, it's it's an old story, but it's a tragic one. The Soviets had made their influence felt all over Eastern Europe and pushed to have communist regimes take over the governments all across the region. In 1948, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin backed a takeover in Czechoslovakia, where the Communist Party stole control of Czechoslovakia's government. Before long, with the Soviet Union pushing them to do horrible things, Czechoslovakia's communists and Posed a horrible, oppressive regime on Czechoslovakia's people. The government eliminated most basic freedoms, imprisoning those who even said anything remotely negative about the government. The government arrested and even executed people on false charges. And the communists also controlled the people in a variety of other ways. You couldn't go travel outside of the Eastern Bloc if you were from Czechoslovakia. And the communists also took away everyone's property. So with that, the new communist regime took the small butcher shop away from the Holik family. Naturally, the Holiks, like so many people in the country, hated the communists for what they had done. Losing the shop, though, had one really important advantage. Up until that point, the boys, Yaroslav and Yuzhi, had helped in the butcher shop. Well, now, if there was no butcher shop for the family, there was no point to them coming to work with their parents. The boys could now focus on other things, and their father decided that they were going to focus on one thing in particular, and that was becoming star athletes. The father had this as a plan, and there was a sport that was especially popular in Czechoslovakia. During the winter, the Holik boys would get up long before the sun would rise so they could get to the ice before it would thaw, and they trained in hockey. Along with their best friend, a boy named Jan Suki, the Holiks turned their little town's youth hockey team into the greatest junior squad in the country. And when they grew up, the Holiks and Suki became three of the top players in the country and stars on Czechoslovakia's beloved national hockey team. People in Czechoslovakia loved their hockey, and the stars of the national team were heroes all across the country. I want to say a very quick thing about these three boys. They are incredible characters, incredible personalities. In the center of these three right here, We've got, well, the central character in my book. This is Yaroslav Holik. He was simply a wild man. 
He argued with everybody all the time, and that was his more gentle side. He also had fistfights with everybody all the time. His wife told me, well, actually, they called it defending themselves back then. He was also, though, the leader of every team he was ever on, and he pushed his teammates to make their squad great. So that's Yaroslav. He's the center of everything. But on the left, we've got his little brother, Yuji, who is the complete opposite of his big brother. He was well-behaved, he did what he was told, and he was also one of the greatest and fastest skaters in the entire world. He made his first Olympic hockey team when he was 19 years old, and he was at least as good a hockey player as his big brother. Then, though, we have the dark-haired Yansuhi, the biggest character of them all. He could be a book unto himself. He loved playing practical jokes on everybody all around him. At 11 years old, he actually started smoking cigarettes pretty heavily and started drinking at 13 years of age. These were habits that he had throughout his entire life, as I saw when I met him. And we had to interrupt our interview periodically for him to go do these different things. He also became famous for his wild nights, and while he trained, he actually carried and drank beer with him. This was on his big bicycle rides. He always felt like the beer made the, the training more enjoyable. He was also the greatest hockey player in all of Czechoslovakia. Well, as the Holiks and Suki became stars in the late 1960s, something amazing started to occur in Czechoslovakia. Remember, I talked about all the government repression that existed under the communist regime? Well, in 1969, under a new leader, Alexander Dubček, Czechoslovakia experienced what became known as the Prague Spring, where people gained freedoms they hadn't previously known. And the big one is, among other things, people, regular people, could now act and speak freely without punishment. There was a sense of joy. There was a sense of now, this is how you get to live a life. Well, here's the rub. There was someone who was not at all pleased, and that was the Soviet Union. This here is a picture of Dubček and Soviet leader Brezhnev negotiating over what the world for Czechoslovakia was going to look like. The Soviet leaders had always told Czechoslovakia's government what to do, and now the Soviets feared they were losing control of their puppet. And so, late on the night of August 20, 1968, the Soviet Union led a handful of communist nations in taking action. Czechoslovakia was a government of just 14 million people. By the time those 14 million woke up on the morning of August 21, 1968, hundreds of thousands of Soviet-led troops were pounding through their streets. Within days of the start of the invasion, thousands of tanks and half a million troops entered Czechoslovakia and quashed the Prague Spring. The people of Czechoslovakia were rightly devastated. They had thought they'd finally found the freedom and a better life that they had sought. And just like that, the Soviets had come in and taken that better life away from them. And all across the country, people felt utterly demoralized. They didn't stand a chance in military battle. And it seemed there was no way to fight back against the Soviets who had done all this to them. Well, it turned out, though, an ice rink in Stockholm offered the people of Czechoslovakia a chance. 
As I said earlier, hockey had long been the great love of Czechoslovakia's people, and so they became fixated on the 1969 World Ice Hockey Championships in Stockholm, Sweden, which was held just seven months after the invasion. Now, the problem was, starting in 1963, the Soviets had become the world's dominant ice hockey team, having won six straight world championships and including the last two Olympic gold medals. The Soviets were simply great. The world championships then took on importance in a way that almost no sporting event has, though. Partly, it was seen as a chance for revenge. In the lead-up to the March 1969 World Ice Hockey Championships, everywhere they went around Czechoslovakia, the Czechoslovak players encountered people who told them, we don't care what else you do, just beat the Russians, which is what they called the Soviets. I did many interviews with people in the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and one of the ones I most enjoyed was a woman who was in her early 20s in 1969, and she told me she didn't think she'd be much help to me because she had no interest in hockey. I said, that's okay. Tell me about your life. Tell me about 1969. She said, oh, 1969. That's when our boys fought the Russians on the ice. I watched every second of those matches. In fact, 93% of all households in Czechoslovakia watched those matches. It was also a chance to prove that the Soviets had not taken away every freedom from them. People in Czechoslovakia thought that they had lost to the Soviets because they were actually forced to lose to them, that they weren't actually given the right to. This is untrue. The, the hockey players found this very disturbing to think that they were told to lose. But people thought this. Now, a particular thrill for me was when I interviewed tennis legend Martina Navratilova, who was a kid living in Czechoslovakia in the late 1960s. And she told me about her experience with the matches in 1969. She said, the hockey games went beyond sports. They gave people hope. And the outcome of those matches would let us know if we still had the freedom to win. And I'm such a smart guy that it took me three weeks to realize she had just given me my title. Well, Czechoslovakia's hockey team headed to Stockholm where it would play the Soviets twice in the tournament. Czechoslovakia's team captain announced, even if we have to die on the ice, we have to beat them. Yaroslav Holik was a big part of this. He was part of a group that wanted to make clear that this event was far more than just a sporting event. So for years, the crest, the coat of arms for Czechoslovakia, included a lion with a crown over its head. And over time, though, the communists had insisted that the crown be removed and that a communist star be placed over the head of the lion. So in 1969, the hockey players were forced to wear jerseys that had the communist star on it. Well, as they prepared to play the Soviets, Yaroslav and his teammates got some black tape and taped over the communist star on their jerseys. It was a clear message to the Soviets. You're, you and your system are dead to us. Well, the day finally arrived when Czechoslovakia would take on the Soviet Union in the tournament. And I think Stephen and I are going to, we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but I just want to give a little background to what the feeling was as the players readied to take the ice. In general, Yaroslav Holik didn't do much before hockey matches, but games against the USSR at, were different. As he prepared to play the Red Machine, Yaroslav thought back to his childhood, 
when the communists had seized his parents' butcher shop. He recalled how he had listened along with his family to the broadcasts of the horrific show trials and how his father and the men at home said it was really Moscow pulling the strings. Finally, the coaches announced it was time. As the players navigated the wide concrete moat separating the locker room and the stands from the ice, they heard something remarkable, a roar of encouragement more akin to what they might have gotten back home in Prague. Swedes made up the bulk of the audience, but on this evening, it was as if they had been transformed. As the players looked around the stands, they saw signs written in Czech supporting the team and condemning the invasion. One otherwise unassuming young man stood holding his poster with hand-scrawled check writing for his, hockey's to, for his hockey heroes to see. You send tanks, we bring goals. This is, this is war minus the shooting. Now, I'm, as I said, really excited to talk about these matches and anything else that uh, people are interested in, but I just want to add a few final things first. These matches are thrilling. They're as exciting as anything I've ever encountered because of what was involved, because they were involved in real stakes in the world. And these hockey players' matches against the Soviets show more than anything else I've seen. And I've studied a lot of politics and sports now. They've, they've shown more about how sports can inspire people and give them hope when all else seems hopeless, especially for people in underdog small towns and small countries who feel that too often the world ignores them. Now, finally, a big thing to add. The story doesn't end with these world championships. It continues as the people of Czechoslovakia try to regain their freedom. And it also continues as one of the main characters, seeing how cruel the government was to its people, takes his adorable little children and decides to train them to become great athletes so that they can escape the communist regime. And uh, just to, to put a, a final point on it, the book can't end until we also see another extraordinary battle, and this time for the gold medal in the Olympic Games. So this is the story of freedom to win. So I think at this point, Stephen and I would like to have a conversation about it. Yes. All right. Thank you very much, Ethan. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for kind of introducing the what's very, very much at, at the heart of the book. Um, there's so many stories, though, that are kind of woven throughout it. Um, but these larger than life personalities kind of uh, kind of animate an important part of it. Um, I do want to actually explore some more of the, the 1969 matches, because I think it kind of really set set people up that yeah. the games themselves are incredible. Um, with the crowds, what they were also chanting. I mean, uh, the, with the crowds, the Swedes and, and the Czechoslovaks who were, who were there. I mean, what are they shouting out when the Soviets are on the end? This is one of the incredible things. I mean, for anybody to try and claim this isn't a political story. So as each game came to a close, the Swedish people started chanting over and over, Dupček. Dupček, Dupček. They were chanting the name of Czechoslovakia's leaders. Utterly remarkable. So they in the first game, when 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 the uh, Czechoslovak team faces off against the Soviets, they show that they do have the freedom to win. 
Right. So how does how does that how does that game? So the, the these both of these games, as I mentioned, are, are utterly utterly thrilling. Now, one of the the things that was um, potentially a problem for the Czechoslovak team was that they were too excited. They were so fired up as the game was beginning. And actually, one of the kind of comical parts to the whole story was um, they were supposed to get off the ice at a certain point so that they could start play. But the Czechoslovak players kept skating around, skating around. And what they were trying to do is throw the Soviets off their rhythm. And so they would then all go skate over to the bench. And then suddenly they would jump over the boards and go back out again. And they kept going. And it was this very comical kind of thing. But they were finding it difficult to score, difficult to score. And then finally, midway through the game, they faced a moment where they actually had a chance that they had an advantage up on the Soviets. And in fact, all of my key players were on the ice at this moment. And Jan Suki gets a pass from Yaroslav Holik and knocks it into the goal. And at the moment that they score, first the crowd goes wild, of course. But then one of the players, Václav Nedomansky, goes over to the right side of the net and lifts it off the ice. Then Yaroslav Holik takes his hockey stick just an inch away from the Soviet goalie's face and screams, you bleeping commie, takes the hockey stick, smashes it down on the net a few times, then takes the left side of the net and throws the entire net. And people loved it. (laughs) People thought this is, you know, finally, this is some way of expressing all this that we're feeling. So that was the first goal. And then Czechoslovakia finds a way to score a second goal in the third period, and they win two to nothing. And, um, you know, this was a stunning moment because, again, the Soviets are so strong. Dupček, the Dupček champ is raining down. And exactly, that this, they, they were told, people thought that they were not, they didn't have the freedom to win. They had, people thought that they were forced to lose. So this victory actually meant a lot to people in terms of asserting their freedom. But then they wanted to assert one more thing as well. They had, before the matches, agreed to violate uh, hockey protocol. You're supposed to shake hands with the opposing team at the end of every match. And Czechoslovakia had planned in advance not to do this, and they sprinted off the ice immediately once the, the, the game was over. And the Western press actually commented on this, saying uh, that the Czechs refused to shake hands of Russian losers. So that was, yes, that was game one. But, and then there end up being sort of explanations like, well, it's the <laughs> losing team's job to initiate the handshake. Yes, exactly. The coach of Czechoslovakia's team just went through all sorts of, you know, physical gymnastics to try and get himself and his team out of it, saying, yes, back in Czechoslovakia, we always have the loser go congratulate the winner. So it wasn't our responsibility. Yes. So that's game one, right? Yes. And then they have to face them again uh, in, in, this, in this championship tournament. Exactly. And in between the two games, there were all sorts of things going on in terms of people really, um, people were taking pity upon the Czechoslovakian uh, journalists who were in, in uh, Stockholm. Um, essentially, there was incredible support among the Swedish people for people from Czechoslovakia. Uh, they were offering actual stipends to any person from Czechoslovakia who wanted to become now a Swedish citizen. They were offering them stipends to help them get jobs and learn Swedish, 
Um, there was one journalist I spoke to. He's one of Czechoslovakia's leading journalists, uh, sports journalists at the time. He had people jokingly offering uh, their daughters to him in marriage if he would like to become a Swedish citizen. Um, so the Swedish people were walking around with big, with big uh, Czechoslovakia flags. And then we've got Yaroslav Holik putting the tape over his jersey. So they then take to the ice with a rage and they proceed to have, well, game one, the Soviets had been a little off their game because they were stunned to feel so much hatred from the, the crowd. They, they were shocked by this. I mean, every time uh, the crowd had a chance, in, in Europe, um, what they do rather than boo is they whistle. And so anytime the Soviets... Uh, would hit a Czechoslovak player somewhat hard or would have the puck, whistles would rain down on the ice. This time, though, in game two, the Soviet players, they, they were back on their game. They were much more composed. And what we saw was this incredibly tight game going all the way into the third period and tied up at two goals apiece. And there was this incredible moment. One, one of the players I spoke with... Um, it, one of the, the remarkable things about getting to do this research is, is speaking with these men who had been involved in these historic moments. And I spoke to this one player, Josef Hodoshovsky, who was a very young player at the time. He was built like a truck. And he told me at one moment he got the puck staring in. He was a good distance from the goal. And he said, you practice these shots over and over, and you can hit it basically exactly where you want, but there's always an element of luck. And he smacked it hard, and it just snuck through past the goalie. And he said to me, you know, it felt the same as every winning goal I've ever had. There's this, it's the, you get this weird tingling sensation all over your body, and then all of a sudden you feel incredible relaxation. And he felt that feeling as he led Czechoslovakia to a 3-2 lead and his teammates mobbed him. Soon enough, uh, Yaroslav Holik scored a fourth goal to make it 4-2, but then the Soviets were coming back, pushing hard, pushing hard. They made, brought it all the way to 4-3. to three. They were pushing hard, charging as the crowd is chanting, Dubček, Dubček, Dubček. And Czechoslovakia manages to hold off the Soviets and take the second game. And what happens in, in Prague and throughout Czechoslovakia when that happens? This is the part that, for me, really, this is the part that led me to say, this isn't just your average sporting event. You know, This is not merely a symbolic thing. There are so many times we see things in sporting events where we say, oh, the people feel inspired, you know, or they feel devastated by what happened. That wasn't all. As soon as people turned off their little black and white television sets in Czechoslovakia, they took to the streets. So you had hundreds of thousands of people going to Wenceslas Square in Prague. You had tens of thousands of people in towns all across the country. And at first it was a celebration. You actually, I've got a, a wonderful picture in the book of uh, somebody who's driving her car in Wenceslas Square, and she has four three on her on her uh, windshield. It's the score of the match, and you've got people holding up signs that say uh, "Dupček four, Brezhnev three, um, all around. You know, marching around. 
But then the whole thing morphed. And what went what began as a celebration, you had thousands of people raging against the Soviets. So in every single town in the country where Soviet soldiers were barracked, the Czechoslovak people started to attack. They started to throw bricks. They started to throw torches. They were cursing the soldiers and actually had altercations with security officials. In Prague, in right by Wenceslas Square, uh, was the Aeroflot Soviet airline. And people stormed the airline office, destroyed the whole thing, ransacked it all, took every piece of anything that would actually be carryable into the street, including pictures of Lenin, tossed them and created a bonfire in the street until security officials arrived. This then caused issues that, that this took it way beyond. Um, from this point on, the Soviets said, you're out of control. We've been too kind to Alexander Dubček. Who is still playing a role within the government. Exactly. Up until this point, Dubček was still permitted to play a role. But now the Soviets used us all as a pretense. They said, you're out of control. And they called them, these hockey riots indicate that Czechoslovakia's government cannot control its people. And we've been too kind with you. And so they sack Dubček, and this is when they force a, a really a much, much more hardline government upon Czechoslovakia's people. Yeah, I think what a lot of people don't understand is that after the invasion, it wasn't as if yeah. a, 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 a curtain descended and everything was in utter darkness. This period of norm, right? normalization yeah. kind of had this increasing darkness and oppression that, that went on for years, but it really begins yeah. hard in, in March of 69. Exactly. Yeah. Following the hockey riots. Right. Um, one of the moments though, of celebration, um, there's one, tell, talk about the newscaster and her toast, mm -hmm. because it's one of those moments of poetry that of course comes back to haunt someone. Um, yeah. And, but will be vindicated, should be vindicated, you know, years later. Yeah. So, in fact, there are a number of examples of this sort of thing. There was, um, you know, it, actually doing the broadcast, one of the, the hockey announcers, sa you know, said you know, something to the effect of, you know, people back home, go celebrate this, which the censors later claimed, you know how, um, suggesting that he was telling the people to go riot. There was one newscaster. Once the games were over, the, um, the, the, you know, the matches were closed and they returned to the studio and the newscaster said, ordinarily, I like to drink herbal tea, but tonight I celebrate and toast with wine. And she drank down what actually was a different colored beverage, but she was claiming it was wine. And in both of these cases, with the hockey announcer and with this newscaster, what people claimed is both of them were responsible for the hockey riots of that night following the match, that they had instigated these. And that, in fact, I mean, they had intentionally tried to get the people to riot. And as a result, both of them were fired from their positions, no longer able to work in a broadcasting or in news whatsoever. And so this was the real mark that a much more hardline strict regime had come into play. Now, of course, he showed photographs of the players with the, the star taped over. That was not going to go um, without 
some kind of uh, punishment or inquiry or what what have you. Uh, yeah, and this is really one of these uh, parts of this were were sort of comical. Um, that one of the big ones, um, one of the big people involved in this is the guy in charge of all the equipment, and he got brought to one uh, group of authorities to another, and he was asked. What about these, you know, what about this black tape on the jerseys? Because, by the way, this is a crime. At the time, it was a crime punishable with a few years of imprisonment for defacing the symbol of communism. Well, this equipment manager was actually incredibly resourceful, and he figured out that he was going to get called in. So he grabbed some of these jerseys and tore them right along the communist star and then brought them in and said, look, we had to tape over the tears. So, he, well, that went fine. The problem, though, especially occurred when you've got Yaroslav Holik. So I, I mentioned that this guy was wild, um, that he, um, he constantly fought with everybody one of the big things, Yaroslav Holik could not hold his tongue. He was honest to a fault. So he got brought in. And in fact, he had always been told, you need to join the Communist Party. Um, he had said, because your life will be a lot easier if you join the Communist Party. And his view was, if you're good at hockey, it doesn't matter. You don't need to join the Communist Party. They're not going to do anything to you. So they brought him in. They said, Comrade Holik, did you tape over your, the star on your jersey. And he said, yeah, yeah, I did. And they moved him from one panel to another, and they finally just send him home, figuring, okay, we'll, we'll deal with this later. And it seemed like he was out of the woods. But once normalization really kicked in, so it was basically... A, when you're dealing with a big bureaucracy, it takes a long time <laughs> for these things to work their way through the system. And under normalization, a big thing they did was they investigated every member of the Communist Party and kicked out huge numbers of people. And as this occurred, they finally told Yaroslav Holik, you are no longer on our national team. Somebody who has done, you know, so somebody like you can't be on our national team anymore. And they started actually a secret police file on him. And one of my favorite parts of the book was I've seen the secret police file. And in the secret police file, they said he was removed from the team for taping over the star. And by the way, they gave him the code name Rebel. Yeah. So... This is 1969. Your book covers kind of a, a, a much a much broader span, including I, I want you to talk about um, that idea of freedom to win, um, because you actually do address there's there's one point in in one of the uh, World Hockey Championships where there's an indecent proposal made, oh. um, where and kind of and and the question actually does come come to bear like are you're not supposed to win this one yeah yeah and so when i say people thought czechoslovakia was supposed to lose on purpose i had heard this i had one of the i i actually had multiple hockey players look at me actually with slightly damp eyes telling me we would never do that i'm sitting there going why, why are you why are you fighting so hard on this i never would think it then i got into a taxi one day, and I started chatting with the, the driver. He was an older gentleman. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, our teams weren't allowed to win against the Soviets. I thought this was incredible that, that people really believed this. All right. So in 1972, 
uh, there were there were two big tournaments that year. There would be the World Hockey Championships in Prague, but first there were the Olympic Games in Japan. And going into the final match, it was uh, in fact whoever would win the final match between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia would win the Olympic gold medal. But if they tied, it would guarantee that the Eastern Bloc would get both the gold and the silver. So one day, the coaches came to the captain of Czechoslovakia's team and said, we need you to go talk to your teammates because the Soviet leadership has come to us and made a proposal. And here's what you need to go tell your teammates. The proposal was, hey, why don't we intentionally tie this match against the Soviets? And this will help everybody. And the players were beyond disgusted. They couldn't believe that after all this time, they, people really were questioning whether they would actually do this. They were questioning whether, they, they started to question, really, do we have the freedom to win? And they refused this indecent proposal and proceeded to get shellacked in the process. Yeah. Now, one of, one of the ironies that you cover in kind of laying out the history of hockey, um, it was actually players from Czechoslovakia that went to Moscow to teach players from the Soviet Union how to play the game right in the first place. Yeah, so the, the Czechoslovakia had actually been the first really, really good hockey team from Europe. This was even the case in the pre-war period. Um, in, during World War II, part of the reason Czechoslovakia got quite good at hockey um, was that during World War II, the, the, the people in the country weren't you know, able to go off to war, so the, the, the great hockey players could actually continue to practice. So following the war in 1947 and the first ice hockey championships, the world championships following the war, Czechoslovakia won. In fact, there's a great moment in which it got announced uh, by an in-character opera performer who sang out, tell the master that Czechoslovakia is about to win the gold medal. It's the Barber of Seville. Right? The Barber of Seville, exactly. <laughs> that's, not in the, that's not in the opera. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not ordinarily there. Um, so Czechoslovakia uh, was the two-time world champion in the years that followed um, the uh, World War II. And so the Soviet Union had, had made a decision years earlier that it wouldn't compete in international sports, that that was a bourgeois thing, and also they didn't know if they would be able to actually compete successfully. But following World War II, the Soviets felt that the only way they could really show, you know, as a good propaganda device, they, um, a good thing to do would be to start dominating in sports. And so they started training in sports that the bourgeois countries would be doing, and they decided to train in ice hockey. And they really started pushing this in 1948 as the coup was unfolding in Czechoslovakia. And so uh, the leadership of, of Czechoslovakia sent over its great national hockey players to go train the Soviets how to play their game. And the, it, it made a big difference in how the Soviets played. They became a much better team and before long became the class of the world. There's, but there's also this kind of absolutely hilarious moment when, you know, there, there, there's, the penalties are taking place, but the, the Soviet, Soviet ref doesn't know what, what do you do when someone commits a penalty. So this is a great moment where at one point, so they had a, a, a Czech referee and a Soviet referee. And at one point, the Czech referee called a penalty 
on one of the Soviet players and tried to get him to leave the ice. And the Soviet player didn't understand what he was saying and came over and shook the hand of the referee. And the Czech referee just said, okay, fine, we'll keep going. So from that point on, whenever the Soviet referee called a penalty on anybody, he would go skate over and shake the man's hand. So a number of folks here want to know, who was the most fascinating person uh, that you interviewed? I interviewed so many incredible figures. Um, I would say, I mean, and this, this really is, um, I, I will say actually a first thing, one of my great disappointments is I didn't get to interview Yaroslav Holik, who had passed away not long before I started the process. Um, but I was able to interview a lot of the other people involved, the most a truly extraordinary, fascinating person is Peter Stosny. Um, so Peter Stosny is somebody who is not in the, the rendition I, I gave today, but Peter Stosny um, was a young man who started playing professional hockey when he was 16 for his Bratislava team in Slovakia. He was an ardent uh, Slovak nationalist, and he also happened to play on a line with his two brothers. And so these three brothers were extraordinary. This is in the 1970s. They were three of the greatest players in the country. And thanks to these three brothers, uh, Bratislava became the greatest team in the country. All three brothers played on the national team, where Peter Stosny was one of the absolute stars of the team. And in fact, they all played in the famous 1980 Miracle on Ice Olympics. And they were the heart and soul of the team at that point in 1980. And they all grew incredibly disenchanted uh, with their government and were deeply frightened that in particular, Peter could not keep his mouth shut. He told everybody what he thought. And he became, there became a real risk that he was going to be removed from the team so he and his brothers all snuck out of the country. And in, in a absolutely daring, thrilling, I mean, it, it really is one of these stories that's straight out of a spy novel with, you know, ultimately with armed police in Vienna making the way for them as they sped through the streets of the city to get to the airport and escape the agents that were following them and trying to keep them from going. So these three brothers became stars in Canada for Quebec. They became stars in the National Hockey League. But Peter was always, as I said, he was a Slovak nationalist and his great love was Slovakia. And so after the, the fall of communism, Peter went back to Slovakia. He became the first person ever to carry the Slovak flag in the Olympics. He, he led the, the, the team, the Olympic team, carrying the flag. He's, he is the biggest hero in Slovakia. He was one of the big people in the country pushing for Slovakia to be a member of all the major international organizations. And the thing he is probably most proud of in his life, he, oh, he became a member of the European Parliament, and he is probably most proud of becoming the general manager of Slovakia's ho national hockey team and led Slovakia to the world championship, which then made the people of Slovakia felt, feel like, the world recognizes us now. People usually, they get confused even who we are. Peter is a stunningly interesting person, and, and interviewing him was a real thrill. And I think if, if you look at statistics of Slovak hockey players in the NHL, like he's, 
He's right up there, uh, I think even above Stan Mikita, I think. So Peter Stosny, this is, yeah. this is how you know how great Peter Stosny is. The, the, the one name every person who doesn't know about hockey knows is Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky is the, you know, clear-cut greatest hockey player of all time. So Wayne Gretzky uh, was responsible for more goals than any other player in the NHL in the 1980s. The number two player in the NHL was Peter Stosny. He was simply great. So I have to say, so I, I mentioned Stan, Stan Mikita. He's someone I met when I was a oh, kid, wow. not knowing that he, he was born in, born in Slovakia. But he actually, I think it was his aunt and uncle, took him from, they came back to Slovakia to visit and took him with them because this was uh, 1948 and his parents realized what, what was happening. So that's, incredible. You know, that's the whole life that um, kind of un, un, unfolded for him. And actually, in, a, in a kind of a brief detour, I should, I'll mention tonight, while we've been talking about Slovakia tonight, um, a, a couple of our special guests here, are, uh, Barbara Pivnica and Richard Pivnica. Barbara's the Honorary uh, Consul of the Slovak Republic, who's here, and Richard's the Honorary Consul General of the Czech Republic. Um, and they both served on the board of, they serve on the board of advisors here at the, the Commonwealth Club, which has lo a long connection with things um, Czech and Slovak, I should say, including Václav Havel having spoken here. Um, uh, of course, um, back in the 1940s, Jan Masaryk, um, when, when the country was occupied by uh, Nazi Germany, spoke, spoke here at, at the club as well to try to help people in the United States understand what it meant to live under occupation and what the, the dreams were for a free Czechoslovakia once, once again. Um, one of the other questions that the folks from, from the audience have here is, was there anything that really shocked or surprised you as you were doing your, your research for this yeah. project. By the way, I should add one other person, by the way, when, when we're talking about fascinating people. So I mentioned Bobby Holik before. And so mm -hmm. I, spent, I spent days interviewing Bobby. Bobby is also one of the most fascinating people I've, I've ever met. And um, he was really essential to this whole project, you know, unfolding and actually working out, uh, introducing me to his whole family and just a fascinating, really brilliant person. But yes, yeah, surprises. I would say this was a, a surprise that I came across very early in the project. And um, this is one that I had actually thought on making the book about. And ultimately, I, I really felt very strongly about making this story at the center about the Soviet invasion and what the hockey meant at this time. But actually, the story of hockey in Czechoslovakia really begins in 1950 in a stunning story. And this is something I didn't think such a thing was, was actually possible. So as I'd mentioned, uh, Czechoslovakia had been great in hockey and uh, winning the gold medal in the world championships in 1947 and 1949. In 1950, and actually I should add, that is even with half the hockey team dying in a plane crash and having to reconstitute part of the team. Well, in 1950, the team was getting ready to fly off to London to try to win another world championship. And suddenly the authorities told them, there are some issues and you're not going to go. And a number of players went to a tavern in Prague. And by the way, at the location of this tavern, there's a plaque that you can see that talks about the event that I'm about to point to. So the players go to the tavern and they hear on the radio that 
the authorities say they can't, they're they're not going to go to the world championships because the players said they didn't want to because of things having to do with visas not being offered to Czechoslovak journalists. The players start, they've been drinking a lot by this point. And they start raging against, you know, this, this, this is terrible. And they started bad-mouthing the communists. And they got into a fight with some people. Well, it turned out they weren't just some people. They were, well, the secret police. And these hockey players got pulled off to jail. And they thought, okay, we're getting in trouble for having had a fight. Soon, additional players who weren't even at the tavern got brought in. And next thing you know, this is not just a bar fight trial. The, the men are being put on trial for, they, they were being told, for planning to defect from the country. And more than a dozen of the players ultimately were imprisoned as state traitors for planning to defect. And two of the men in particular were sentenced to 15 years in the uranium mines. And it ultimately killed one of them who was the great goalie of the team. So it never occurred to me just how far the, you know, the authorities would go. And this was a truly stunning story. So one of the points I want to touch on before, I think we need to get to the Olympics as well, because you kind of teased folks with that. But I think also, you know, one of the things that's really powerful about about this book is that, you know, this is not just a story about, oh, here are things that happened to Czechs and Slovaks and, and playing hockey against the Soviet Union. I mean, there are profound lessons that arc across the decades um, that resonate even now. I mean, even in your acknowledgments, you talk about the full scale uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine at, at the end. Um, in the handshake moment, you know, when I read that in, in your story, of course, the first thing that came to mind for me was in, uh, in, in recent months, right? The Ukrainian fencer, Olha mm. Garlan, re- refusing to shake hands at the end of a bout with, a, with a, uh, a Russian fencer. She did want to touch sabers, which is acceptable, but then that turned into right, a whole incident where then she was not allowed to progress in the competition, et cetera. So this is not, it's not like this is done. Uh, That's right. I mean, exactly as, as I put in, um, in the acknowledgements, I, mean, I feel like we are reliving the story. That's, that's right. It's, and um, one thing I, I thought about is writing, when I was writing this book is, um, you know, particularly, you know, as I was putting the final touches on the book as I was as we were seeing what was happening in Ukraine, and I thought to myself, you know, in Czechoslovakia, I mean, it, it was devastating. I, it, you know, a hockey victory can't ever make up for what's happened to you, but still, they people would find reasons for getting up in the morning, and hockey matches that you know would give people a sense that okay, I can make it through this day. I felt some sort of inspiration here. And one of the things I've really been thinking a lot about is, you know, what gets the people in Ukraine up in the morning? What sorts of inspiration, you know, is where can they get that inspiration? And, and one of the things that I was really touched by is as right as I was finishing the book, I um, a Ukrainian publisher reached out to me to see mm-hmm. about possibly translating uh, my book um, for a Ukrainian audience. I don't know where what's happening with that, but I, I, I yes, you, you hope they've got ways of finding inspiration. Yeah, well, I think the sort of the the, the resilience, and, and they find it in in, in many different ways. Um, but of course, this is a very a very fraught fraught moment. And I don't know. And I, I, if I'm remembering right, you also do quote the part of Neville Chamberlain's um, remarks in coming back from Munich that people in the U.S. don't know. They know peace in our time, but the Czechs know very well another part 
That's exactly yeah. right. And actually, I mean, Chamberlain's quote, I mean, when you think of it, especially from today's perspective, looking back, and I, I think I can remember it, actually, I, I think it's something like how horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks at home because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people, and this is the really tough part, between people of whom we know nothing. It's an incredibly, when, he didn't mean it this way, but it's incredibly powerful to think of somebody saying such a thing. And, and it really speaks to, a lot of people are feeling that way now. Of course, and the irony in, at that point, just in terms of geography, like Prague is actually closer to London than Vienna is, right? <laughs> so it actually wasn't that far away, yeah. but it was this willful ignorance yeah. and willing, being willing to consign people to whatever fate that this empire uh, was going to impose on them. That's right. So one of the things, though, that you do recount in the book again and again um, that eluded the Czechs and the, and the Slovaks. In this case, you know, by, by the time the country of Czechoslovakia has, has split up, they never win the gold medal in uh, hockey. Until. <laughs> it's really something. They got so close so many times. It was over and over. They just needed to win the final match. Uh, there was 1968, they just needed to beat the Swedes. In 1972, they, I mean, in the year of this indecent proposal, they just needed to beat the Soviets. In 1976, they had their greatest team ever, and all but two players on the team came down with the worst case of the flu I have ever heard of. And they were actually winning, ready to win the gold medal with just five minutes left in the match. It kept going on and on and on like this. And then, yes, in 1998, it, I mean, it's one of these stories you just, it's, it's too good to, I mean, it's too extraordinary a story to even believe it's real. It, it was one of these where I felt like somebody was messing with me, that this actually happened. And what was really special about 1998, it was the first year where the, the problem for hockey in the Olympics, in the Winter Olympics, is the Winter Olympics are held during the National Hockey League season. So there was no way for the best players in the world to play in these matches in the Olympics. But what the NHL did in 1998 is they said, guess what? We're going to stop our season for two and a half weeks. And we're going to let all the best players from all the top hockey-playing countries come to Nagano, Japan, and play in the tournament of the century. And, I mean, it was a great tournament. And nobody thought the Czech Republic had any chance. Generally, the prediction was the Czech Republic would finish sixth. And somehow they managed on February 22nd, 1998, which was precisely 18 years after the 1980 Miracle on Ice in which the United States had played the Soviet Union and won a miraculous uh, match. In the gold medal game in 1998, the Czech Republic went up to play against Russia for the Olympic gold medal. 
how much how, how much how far should I go and 30 years after the, the, the Soviet led invasion and 30 years after the Soviet led invasion and 50 years after the the coup that took power that led the, the communists to take power yes should I get should I get I think the you need to tell yeah I mean tell and the, the most the, astonishing really? part was so and well, actually I, this is one of the incredible things too there's this magic of eights it's incredible. It's eights with the with Czechoslovakia. I mean, so we had the birth of the country in 1918. We had, I mean, and a lot of these things are, are tragic. 1938 was the Nazi invasion. 1948 was the coup. 1968 was uh, the invasion by the Nazis. People like to point out... The, yeah, the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, not, not, uh, yeah, I've got that. Uh, 1968 was the uh, Soviet Union invading. 1989, people like to talk about, was um, was 68 upside down and flipped. So we had the eights there. And people actually thought maybe 1988 there would be a revolution because of the eights. So 1998... We have the Czech Republic playing against Russia in the Olympic gold medal final. And you can't make this up. Eight minutes and eight seconds into the third period, the score was tied at 0-0. And the puck gets knocked over to a player from the Czech Republic who was, you know, he was a very good defensive player, but, you know, he wasn't especially a scorer or anything. He had been one of, he had, he had defected uh, to the West in the 1980s as just a teenager. Had, you know, nothing but the clothes on his back when he went. And he had played for years in the West and so therefore had never been on the national team before. He'd never scored a goal, nothing, never. And his name was Petr Svoboda. And Stephen, would you would you like to say what Svoboda means? For those who don't speak Czech or Slovak, that means freedom. So eight minutes and eight seconds into the third period of the match in the tournament of the century, Czech Republic against Russia, Petr Freedom Svoboda knocks the puck into the net, and the Czech Republic wins one to nothing. Yeah. Now, in that game also, we, have, we haven't talked about some of the more recent players, but the, the Czech goalie in that game was kind of a, a, a real legend. I mean, it kind of saved them again and again, and again, literally again and again. Yes, exactly. Dominic Hasek uh, was the goalie. He is widely considered. There's no question he's one of the handful of greatest goalies in world history. Uh, he had been you know, one of the big reasons for a lot of Czech success in the past, um, and he yes he say it, it, it people talked about the fact that he just put the Czech Republic on his back for the entire tournament and was truly extraordinary it was it was first and foremost thanks to Hasek that that the Czech Republic won this whole thing so i lived for a couple of years in in Brno in the Czech Republic and the argument would sometimes be who's who's greater is it Jaromir Jagr or, or Dominic Hasek right who's who's a, kind of the greatest greatest player of all time yeah and bringing up Jagr is the other great uh, so Jagr is the other greatest player in um, Czech history and Jagr's story is so wonderful as well I mean first of all he was you know he was very pro Ronald Reagan and adored the West and he was very attuned to what had happened in his country and war number 68 to make sure people didn't forget what had happened that year.
So one of the things that we haven't, haven't talked about, because we've been talking on the national stage, of course, when you're telling your story, you're also talking about, you know, most of the, most of the time these guys are playing against one another in the, in the leagues within, within Czechoslovakia, right? So when, say, uh, when Jaroslav Holik would go to play in, in Brno, he was not beloved by the, the people <laughs> in Brno, right? Because of who he was, right? So uh, this is one of these things, I mean, in various arenas, actually, the players would actually have to make their way through extremely angry crowds that would pour beer down their, their backs, um, would curse them out in one arena, somebody threw an, a knife onto the ice, and Bernot, um, that's they really hated him there. And as his as uh, Yaroslav Holik's wife would go into the crowd, would go out for a smoke break in between periods. She would hear uh, Bruno Faithful saying, you know what, we hate Holik, but it's not going to be any fun once he's gone. So I, I, I do have to say, I, I brought my, my Cometa Bruno uh, uh, scarf tonight. So it, you have not experienced a hockey game until you've seen, seen the hockey game in, in the Czech Republic, first of all. And, and the Bruno fans are, are kind of really, really well known for being, being wild. Um, one of the one of the uh, people here wants wants to talk about parallels and connections with with China. Um, a, a question talking about how a fascinating phenomenon has been U.S. athletes and teams filling their uh, filling with former citizens of China who then beat China in various uh, competitive spaces. Um, wondering if you can talk about uh, sports sports soft power uh, is what this person would would like you to. Yeah. So one of the things, actually, I would on this, I would especially refer people to a book uh, by a political scientist named Victor Cha, who um, spoke specifically about the Beijing Olympics and how China, in particular, was very good at using that sort of thing um, to really expand uh, Chinese influence and really, you know, put a good face on China. So that's that's one of the really big areas. But no, this is one of the things as well that. One of the things that um, countries really like to do with their sports is really use it to demonstrate the superiority of their system. And we see all countries doing this. So, yes, it's a, absolutely a widespread uh, type of pattern. Now, you, I also want to, want to talk a little bit more, go back to Jan Suhi. Um, I mean, he was someone that you, you interviewed, interviewed for this book. Um, you know, you talked about how he smoked and, and drank from, from a young age. But there's also a wonderful moment in the book, like when he is totally off his game um, and, and, and what he tells the coach, like, yeah, I know, I know how I played, right? There's a hilarious moment. I mean, and it really, this guy is one of the true great characters in history. I mean, he really would put tape on the bottoms of his uh, teammates' skates so that when they got on the ice, they would slip and fall. Uh, when he would get on airplanes, the Holik brothers were famous for being terrified of flying. And so Suhi would go up to the, uh, the pilot and ask the pilot to suddenly go into a sharp descent <laughs> as the whole leaks would scream. He thought this was all very funny. Um, but um, he also really was attached to his cigarettes and his beer. And in 1971, uh, the team went off to the world championships and the coaches brought in all the players to talk about, okay, you know, what's going on? And he, they brought them in one at a time. And Suhi said to them, you know what? You're right. I am playing like, in a particular word. And 
but how can you expect me to be at the top of my game if I don't have my cigarettes and I don't have my beer? And the next day there was a truckload filled with cartons of cigarette and huge amounts of Czech beer brought to Yansuki, who ultimately was named the outstanding defensive player in the tournament. On a more serious note, Suki, <laughs> um, come 1989, the Velvet Revolution, right? Um, I mean, he, he has this moment you talk about where it's like, oh, I've seen this before, but, but it feels different this time. Um, and, and, how, and how 1989 was so much a fulfillment of all the, the dreams, right, that, that Czechoslovakia was so close to. But hockey ends up kind of being playing this interesting pivotal role in the midst of the Velvet Revolution as well. That's something I, I was asked about things that surprised me. The role of hockey in 1989 um, was really stunning. Um, and in particular, it began with a, a little known player. It's somebody who actually gets much less attention in my book until we get to the revolution. And I, it, this was something I hadn't planned on being in the book. But while I was doing my research in Prague, I came across somebody who, who brought this up. He just started telling me about the story. So the, the revolution, in essence, the Velvet Revolution, in essence, began when uh, security forces uh, attacked a, a group of peacefully marching students. And as people started to learn about this, they grew very upset and really disturbed. This is ultimately what led to really the, the, the heart of the revolution. And Jan Reindel was a player who was on the, the Prague team. And he was the captain of the Prague team. And he was famous for being a great leader. And he was devastated by what had happened to the students. And he said, okay, this is it. We're... Um, I am going to go make, you know, soon after the attack on the students, uh, there was a hockey match um, in which Prague was playing. And he said, I'm going to go out and tell everybody that we're not playing tonight. And the, the various players said, you can't do that. And he said, okay, well, then I'm going to go out and make an announcement. So he went out to the ice and he went up to the, uh, the, the public address announcer and said, could I have the microphone, please? <laughs> public address announcer said, you can't have a microphone. So Yansuhi, uh, Jan Reindel skates out to the center of the ice. And this is with a capacity crowd, many thousands of people there. And he's, he said, I'm going to try and yell out an announcement. And at the last second, a very kind uh, official, a referee, brought over a microphone to Jan Reindel. And Jan Reindel brought out a statement from the students where he affirmed his and the players' support for what was going on, for the revolution that was starting to unfold. And everybody was silent, saying, this is incredible. How is this happening? And then he started to sing the national anthem. And he sang it for me. His, his voice was this beautiful baritone. And he sang the national anthem, not because not in support of the government, but to demonstrate his support for the people. And the entire arena, so many thousands of people are singing the Czech uh, Czechoslovakia's national anthem. Tears streaming down their faces. And as he finishes, everybody starts chanting, freedom, freedom, freedom. 
total surprise, totally incredible moment. Kind of as a compliment to that, one of the questions that someone here has, and, and maybe you can kind of only begin to answer it, were there stories or what, you know, was there one like, oh, if only had, you know, another 50 pages, I could also have told this story or what, you know, or those, you know, kind of for the, you know, if you were to kind of build it out, uh, you know, in, in more a digital version, you know, more, more stories that, that could be told. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's so many things in here. One of the things I, I, I would, I, I, I recommend people the, the book, that got me interested in this to begin with is a book by Tal Pinchevsky um, about hockey players um, who defect, fr defect from the Eastern Bloc to the West. And in that book, there's a remarkable story. It offers great detail on the Stasny's escape from the Eastern Bloc. That was really incredible. Um, stories of hockey defectors. I would have liked to have spent more time on those sorts of things. Um, but also, I would have liked to have spent even more time. The Holik children, Yaroslav Holik's children, are these incredible figures. So I talked about how one of the characters wanted to get his children out of there. He, um, Yaroslav, saw that you know he saw that what could happen to people. It was only his hockey success that made it possible for him to be relatively free. And he feared what would happen to his kids. So he trained his daughter Andrea to be a great tennis player. And she ended up being the Wimbledon girls junior champion. And he trained his son, Bobby, to be this great hockey player. And I would have liked to have spent more time on these young people and what they were doing to escape, you know, the, the difficulty of life under communism and, and the ways in which they were trying to find a way that they, they could make it work for them in the West. Well, that's and it, and it's interesting. I mean, of course, you, I mean, with tennis earlier, you mentioned Martina Navratilova. Um, you you tell the story also in the book about the first time she was finally allowed to come back to Czechoslovakia, um, and kind of and all the kind of the both the excitement and the strangeness around that. Um, like they're not even don't want to say her name. That was again another again. I'm, I'm so glad people asked about things I was surprised by. This story absolutely knocked my socks off. So Martina Navratilova had defected to the West in the early 1970s. Uh, she'd become an American citizen. And she was not permitted to go back to Czechoslovakia. She periodically asked to go back to see her family. She was always denied. Well, the Czechoslovak leadership wanted to host... Um, the Fed Cup, which was the um, the women's essentially, it was the uh, tournament between countries in women's tennis. So each country would put forward the best female players in tennis from their country, and it happened to be that Czechoslovakia was the three-time defending champion in the event. Had great players. Prague was going to host the 1986 Fed Cup. And the problem for the Czechoslovak leaders then was that meant they had to let everybody in. And that meant allowing Martina Navratilova back into the country in 1986. And as she came back to the country, there were interviews. The New York Times got some pretty astonishing quotes from people saying, Martina gets to be free. We want to have that kind of freedom. Well, as Martina was playing throughout the tournament, the tournament directors were under orders not to say her name. She was, at best, the lady from the USA. 
And so in one match, uh, she was playing somebody from Italy. And that, you know, they, they said the name of the Italian player. And then there was the lady from USA. And the crowd yelled out in Czech, say her name, say her name. And they all started chanting, say her name. And finally, they announced Ms. Navratilova. And led by Martina Navratilova, the United States won the tournament. And at the end, she spoke to the crowd in Czech. And it was, you can watch this on YouTube. It was the most astonishing standing ovation that went on for minutes as the Czechoslovak communist leadership filed out of the stadium to escape having to hear these cheers for Martina Navratilova. It was a stunning moment, yeah. So I know, I, I imagine this is part of your course on sports and politics that, that you teach as well. What, what are some, some other moments? I mean, you know, when, when I read about the development of that course, the kind of the different ones that, that came to mind, you know, for, for me over the years, the, after 1956, uh, Hungary playing the Soviet Union and water polo where there was literally blood in the water, Right. Um, what else? Uh, kind of some of the some of the other big ones that the folks might know. Yeah. So as I said before, it, you know, it starts off with a lot on civil rights. It involves also, you know, Jesse Owens and the Nazis and the, the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Um, but it also has got Jackie Robinson and the integration of baseball. But yes, 1956, following the Hungarian Revolution, where there is this water polo match between the Soviets and Hungary, where there's blood in the water. Um, my favorite story is, of course, this one. But um, aside from that, my favorite story, um, which is uh, incredible, is uh, Nelson Mandela using rugby in 1995 to help unite the country behind rugby and behind the new democracy, the new multiracial democracy that was forming in South Africa. That, that's a, a really ex extraordinary story. Right. Well, unfortunately, Ethan, we've, we've reached a point we've run out of time here this evening. So I, I want to say thank you very much. Please join me in thanking Ethan Shiner. Thank you so much. Author of Freedom to Win, a Cold War story of the courageous hockey team that fought the Soviets for the soul of its people and Olympic gold. Uh, we encourage you to pick up a copy of Freedom to Win uh, here or at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit the website, www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Stephen Saum. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. And please You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.